You're listening to the Ready, Set, Cloud podcast, a show about trending and difficult topics in serverless and in the cloud. This week, we're talking about generative AI, the tech that's taken the world by storm, doing everything from writing code to creating images to even doing vacation planning. But how does it work? I have Matt Carey on the show to talk about how we go from question to answer in this magical landscape. Ready, set, let's go. AI is everywhere. Ever since ChatGPT came into the market, we've seen a tidal wave of innovation, startups, and services begin to crop up around generative AI. We all have access to it. Most people know how to use it, but too many of us have no idea how it works. Here with me today to talk about the inner workflows of generative AI is Matt Carey. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, happy to have you. So you're a serverless developer at Alias, an AWS community builder, and you've been doing some really cool, innovative stuff with generative AI lately. Where do you find the time? I, I have no idea where I find the time. Between client projects, open source projects, and a bunch of other stuff, my days are starting to look very round, but it's all good stuff, all stuff I'm enjoying. That's great. And I want to talk about a lot of the stuff that you've been working on. But before we go and, and jump into that, I want to level set with everybody. How does generative AI differ from the generic term AI? What is it? You can think of AI, artificial intelligence, as a larger area than generative AI. Generative AI is like a, a small area inside a broader field of AI. So AI might include things like more ML type stuff, like image classification and deep learning, and also like reinforcement engines. Most traditional AI uses training data to make decisions on new data. So if you can imagine you train a model to tell the difference between a cat and a dog, and then you give it images of cats and images of dogs, and it tells you whether it's a cow or a dog. It's like high volume of data, but with small decision-making. And the key is how small you can make your decision-making and how good the output is. Because a generative AI is using large quantities of training data, often orders of magnitude larger to create new content, like fully new content, but similar to that training data. So it's a different way of thinking about things, but it's broadly the same thing. So do you have a good example of that? Like I completely followed the training with cats and dogs, but how would that apply to generative AI? What's a practical example of something like that? Under the hood, some of these models use the same sort of systems, but you're going to say something like, make me a picture of a cat. And then it would take that prompt it's going to, like the way mid-journey works is it's going to start with like one pixel or it's going to start with a whole series of random pixels. And then they put it through their weights and models and they change each pixel and, t and then they readjust. I don't know if you ever made a mid-journey prompt, but it will zoom in on what you're looking for. And every time it changes a pixel, it reevaluates whether that was a better pixel or not. And then it just changes, changes, changes. And then you end up with something that looked completely random, now looks like a cat or a dog. It goes through the layers and it just decides. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And the word generative in, in this case makes sense because you were asking the AI to use the data it was trained on to create something new. That's the whole generative concept, not asking to evaluate, is it this or is it that? It's build me one of these. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. That helps. That really helps a lot. Now, you mentioned mid journey. 
I already mentioned ChatGPT, and those are typically the two things that people associate with generative AI. What else is available out there? You also have um, embeddings models, which is third aspect. So you have completions models, image generation, and then embeddings. And embeddings is normally just API access. And we'll talk probably a little bit more in the future about what they actually enable, but I'd say they're the dark horse of generative AI that you don't really understand or think about unless you're developing apps with it. Yeah, let's put a pin in that because that's a word that I don't think a lot of people know. It's a very important word with generative AI, but let's circle back around because what I want to kick this off with is just walking through an end-to-end -end process. So let's take ChatGPT as an example. I think everybody knows what that is. How does it work? So I type in a question and I get an answer back in natural language. It understood my question completely. It looked up data somewhere, did something. How does it work? How, how does it take my question and then return it back to me in language that I understand? First things first, it, it's not understanding your question. I think there's a big misnomer here. What it's essentially doing is it's a huge recommendation engine to say you ask it a historical question. I don't know, like, who is the first president of the United States? Okay. Who was the first president of the United States? So what it's going to do is it's going to split up this question into a series of what they call tokens. And a token might be one character long. It might be up to five characters. And this token is, it's normally around a full word, a small word. It can be two words if it's larger. And then what it does is it takes those tokens, it puts it through a neural network. And those that neural network, you can think of it as like a big, like a big spider diagram. And on these spider diagrams, you have numbers. And on these numbers, these are called weights. And you take the original tokens, you put them through the neural network. And each token, they basically get mapped to another token using the tokens that are around them to influence their weights. And this is what transformer technology is all about. And that's a really like high level view. But yeah, how you get the answer back at the end is it's taken all your tokens, it's seen what's around your tokens, and then it's searched through its weights to map those to new words. That's all it's doing. And where does the generative part come in to all of that? So instead of it tending towards a yes or a no answer, it's mapping to new training data. So it's taking your training data, it's splitting it up. It's taking your new word, it's splitting it up. And then it's mapping the new word to something it's seen in training data. And because it's splitting it up, it's making these really small building blocks that appear generated because it's applying them in new and different ways. So that's the difference between that and traditional AI. Yeah. Let's talk about tokens. Because you said it could be one character, it could be a few characters. Do you know how it decides? How do we know what a token is? And does it matter if we even know what a token is? Is this like, is there a way that I would phrase a question in a better way or a worse way to optimize the token chunking or the types of tokens that get generated from my question? So having things like new lines really messes with, with tokens, especially a trailing new line. So you want to avoid that in your prompts at all costs. You don't really need to understand what a token works to use ChatGPT really well. It just does it all for you. But if you're building an app with Generative AI, you can use a library called TickToken. They allow you to actually calculate the amount of tokens that it's going to be in a particular prompt, which is helpful for building applications. So I'm with you there. It takes the question, chunks it up into tokens, and, and it doesn't really matter to programmers who are building something on top. It, it does matter in the sense that the number of tokens in and out affects the cost. At least that's how OpenAI charges. So let's talk about the, the training data. 
Now, this is looking for, you said recommendation engine a few times, which means that it's not looking for exact matches. It's looking for things that are close in proximity or related to the question that you're asking. Is that right? It depends what you're talking about, really. If you're talking about getting data from documentation, so you have like a huge list of documentation, and then you're trying to ask questions through documentation. It's like the third thing that people do when they start messing with LMs. The first is like, oh, have a chat with it. The second is maybe go on mid-journey. And the third mm -hmm. is like, how can I use this to retrieve unstructured data? So this is what we actually solved with Quiver, a project that I was working on that's got like 20,000 stars on GitHub. It's gone a bit crazy recently. It's really interesting how it works. And there are lots of different methods of doing it. There's three main ones, but there's one that most people are using. So the, the easiest method is to use something with, to use a model with a really large context window. So we haven't talked much about context window yet, but it's really important in terms of Genesis AI. It's the amount of tokens that you can send to the AI and the amount of tokens you can get back. So normally the context window includes the tokens you give and the tokens you receive. So it's the total number. And it ranges all the way from 2000 tokens was Falcon, one of the best open source models recently. GPT three and a half, something like four and a half thousand tokens. GPT-4 goes from 8,000 all the way up to 32,000, depending on which model. But then like the real monster in the room is like Claude 100K. So if you're using Claude 100K and you're using it with API access, you can basically upload like half a small book and then just ask a question at the bottom. And it would use the previous knowledge in that prompt. And it would answer the question based on this previous knowledge. So that's the easiest way of doing data retrieval. There are some downsides to doing that. You're going to spend a huge amount of money. That's probably like $2 per, per API call, but that's the easiest way. What you're probably more interested in, I don't know, is RAG. Does that mean anything to you? I've heard the acronym before, but I don't really know what that means. It's like retrieval, augmentation, and generation. But essentially you load unstructured data. And I'm going to mention the word Langchain now, and they're going to come up probably quite a lot. Langchain is like an ecosystem library in Python and in JavaScript. Uh, which allows you to do stuff really, really quickly because they've created a huge amount of really helpful classes. First thing, you've got to load your data. So you can use a Langchain loader. They have a document loader. So if you've got PDF documents, they can load it, do all the OCR and extract all the images and extract all the text and load that into a vector store. Then you're going to want to split it into little chunks. Then you're going to want to get embeddings from those split texts. So this is what we alluded to earlier. But the embeddings, it's a third type of model. So you have completions, image generation, and then sort of the dark horse is embeddings. And so embeddings are essentially the semantic meaning of that little chunk of text expressed in a multi-dimensional space. We got to unpack that a little bit. You, you said a lot of words. So let's start with defining some of these words before we go on. The first one, this is quite a bit of a step back, is LLM. What is an LLM when we're talking about generative AI? An LLM is a large language model. It's a type of general purpose transformer, which you might have heard the acronym GPT, which focuses entirely on language. Most of the big foundational models, so um, OpenAI's GPT-4, you know, Bedrock's Titan, like AWS's Titan, all these are all large language models because they're foundational models trained predominantly on language. Your LLM is actually your AI. It's the actual models. You have your text, you send your text to the model, the LLM, and the model returns you back. In your case, what you're thinking of is completions model. So you send the text, the text might be um, system. You'll give it a system tag and say, you are um, an AI chatbot 
designed to return the answer that the user is looking for. Then you'll write user question, and then you'll insert the user's question into the prompt, and then you'll send all that to the AI, and it will just complete that sentence. So this is completions. Got it. Okay. So let's tick in one. You mentioned vector databases. Where do those come into play with LLMs? They really come into play with RAG, which is what we were beginning to discuss about. But they, they come into play when you're trying to store embeddings. So embeddings are vectors, which is semantic meaning of the text. Now, one of the three types of models, completions, image generation, and embeddings. And embeddings allow you to input chunks of text and return vectors. And what's special about these vectors is if you input similar chunks of text to each other, you will get vectors that have a close distance between them. So you can do semantic searching. And that's all embeddings are useful for, is semantic searching, working out which pieces of text are similar and which ones are different in terms of their meaning. Not in terms of how many characters there are or what particular characters are in there, but actually what the meaning of those words are. And so that has an entire science to it as well, because based on the context, it could mean something completely different. Yes, yes, exactly. And that comes into how you do the chunking. Previously to loading something into a vector store, you can't load your whole file and get a vector representation like your whole file. It would work, but it wouldn't be very useful because you just get the overall semantics of your whole file. What you normally have to do is chunk it up to something smaller. So anywhere between like a hundred tokens and a thousand tokens, you'll chunk up your embeddings. Can we take a practical example on this, Matt? Let me set you up. Over the weekend, I was actually using Quiver and I pointed it at my website. I said, learn, ready, set cloud. And then it did something. I don't really know what it did. I was able to ask it things like, can you please generate 10 Twitter messages that summarizes the content that I've created recently? And it was able to do it, but I don't really know what's going on there. So can we dive into all this stuff with that as the example? So first thing you did when you added your URL to the ingest bar, what you're doing there is the back end of Quiver is then going to go and scrape your website. It's going to ping your website. It's going to download all the HTML. It's going to extract all the text from your website. And that's what we're going to use as context. And then we're going to split up that text. We're going to chunk it into individual pieces. And this is dependent on what type of text we're getting. If it's code, we'll do it slightly differently to if it's text. If it's a CSV file, we'll do it slightly differently. This is some of the magic behind Quiver. That's all open source. You can go and have a look. And once we've split it up, then we're going to go and ask OpenAI, can we use your embeddings model through your API to get a vector representation of all these chunks? We're going to load those chunks of text as a vector into a vector store. So vector stores are really interesting because they allow very, very fast searching between vectors. So now we've loaded your context into the vector store that's attached to Quiver. Now you're going to make a query. In the chat bar, you're going to be like, using the context or using the front page of my website, write me five Twitter messages. So you're going to send your prompt. We're actually going to append the system prompt to it. So we're like, you are Quiver. You are a personal assistant, and we're going to define some like parameters. Then we're going to send that to the conversational retrieval chain in Langchain. And what that does, Langchain is going to go off. It's going to get embeddings for your message. It's then going to do a similarity search between those embeddings and the embeddings in your vector store. 
we're going to get back the most relevant context to your question. So if you're saying, can I get five tweets for the five most relevant articles? What it's probably going to do is it's probably going to search for the word tweet or search for the word article in that context. It's going to find the closest embeddings. So like the most useful ones, it's going to go back and grab the actual text chunk. We're going to add that to the prompt and say, use this as context. And then we're going to send it to the language model and get back an answer. So we're basically providing relevant context to the LLM at runtime. Did that make sense? It does make sense. There's so much more than, than appears on the surface. That's really something. So is that something that uh, Quiver specifically is doing? Or is that something that all of these generative AI services are, are doing behind the scenes? Is that like a common practice to go fetch that context out of a vector database, bring it back, modify the prompt with context, and then pass that along? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So RIG is a pretty common practice. Langchain have got like five or six different pre-built chains for it. Llama Index, another sort of collection of tools for this, has a bunch more tooling for this. The complexity comes in when you think about the chunking. So if you're searching through a whole book and you're trying to see how many times the word red is in the whole book, if you have a chunk that is too large, it won't pick up on the word red. So you won't get that back as context. So you, then you need to make your chunking smaller. But say you have a whole book and you want to say, summarize this book, then you need a larger chunking. So this is actually really important. This is one of the things that we're working on. And also Langchain are working on this, like one of the pain points. Another one of the pain points is actually getting relevant embeddings, switching between different embeddings models. They all slightly different lengths. Even when you're using vector stores, one similarity search is not equal to another similarity search. There's like eight different algorithms of doing similarity search. And so which one do you pick? These are all things that if you get really deep into it, you can actually customize to your heart's content, or you can use something like Langchain at the top level and use a very high level construct. You could think of it like CDK for AWS. You can either go in really deep and write CloudFormation, or you can come all the way out and just use an L3 construct that you found on serverless land, which is like really good fun as well. That is a really good way to put it. I think that will resound a lot with uh, the people listening. I haven't thought of it that way, but now that you phrase it that way, that's super, super helpful. Let's pivot away. Uh, we talked about LLMs, vector databases, embeddings, chunking the data. Let's talk about something that will uh, blow more people's minds. And let's just talk about what's next. What are the things that are now capable that we weren't able to do before, but also where do you see the innovation going? What do you think is not possible now, but will be possible at the end of this year, at the end of next year? There's a lot that's opening up as a result of this emerging tech. And I'm sure that it's going to continue to innovate faster as the AI gets good enough, it can probably make itself better. So what do you see coming? Talking about making itself better is like an idea around like AGI. That's like artificial general intelligence, um, which I don't really want to get into because it's like, really controversial. We had a, a meetup, the first generative AI meetup in London last week. And uh, one of the guys brought up AGI and I don't know, it divided the room. I don't really care that much. I think we're going to have so much other cooler stuff. But I guess what's really improved in the last few months, which is really exciting for a lot of people, is that three months ago, there wasn't great documentation on how you can actually use this stuff. And Landchain specifically have worked really hard, I know they have, to help fix that. And so when we built Quiver, when we first started building it, when Stan first started building it, the creator, 
there was none of this stuff. He built Quiver in, in very few lines of code, mind. It was like 200 lines of code, the first POC. Um, but like there was 200 lines of completely undocumented code that he wrote. And it was really well. We actually haven't changed much of the underlying tech other than account for edge cases since then. So like you can actually get started really quickly and make POCs. Like you can make POCs retrieving documents, POCs and chatbots, like very, very quickly. And I think a lot of like individuals and businesses are going to find use for this sort of stuff. What I'm really excited about moving forwards is allowing developers to actually create more stuff. So more stuff and make it quicker and make it more maintainable and make it safer and just allow devs to deploy things to prod like much, much faster and then have it working in prod using AI and also not using AI in prod. So I've been developing something called Orion Tools. So Orion Tools is going to contain a project that I started a few weeks ago called CoReview GPT, uh, which allows you to review your code using AI um, in the CI. So in GitHub or GitLab, your CI runs, you get a lovely little comment box that reviews your code. It spots all the stuff that you really shouldn't leave in your code, like environment variables. It spots like really areas where you've used unperformant code. So you like haven't awaited your promises. Maybe you've got like a random bug or like you've got really high complexity in your function. Just like things that you could check with ESLint, but then also stuff that you like couldn't check. So something that static checkers won't be able to check for is your syntax if there's like a better way of doing it. So in Python, if there's like a more Pythonic way of doing it with say Pydantic and you're using a base class in Pydantic really badly, like you wouldn't be able to check that with a static checker, but CodeWGBT can check that in CI and it will tell you, not only will it check it, it will tell you what is actually the better way of writing it. So we found it really useful because we run it on itself. So when we write code in CodeWGBT, we then push to a PR and then it reviews itself. So it often spots a lot of issues and that's how we know it's useful, which is really, really encouraging and cool. But I imagine this world where in not very long, we're talking like six months time, you create an issue, you'll have a GitHub bot that you assign to the issue. It will write like 80% of your code. It will write like basically all of it. And it might have done a few things wrong. You, you can't think of it as being foolproof. It probably will have imported some stuff that doesn't exist. Wow. You can go in, change those few imports, check that it's actually doing what you want it to do. You can test it with um, an AI assisted tool, and then you can review it with another AI assisted tool. And then if you're using AI in the tool itself, like say it's a chatbot or something, then you have prompt manager, something like PM2, the NPM package. And it just, it collects feedback from your customer. It collects the prompt, it collects the output, and it combines all those two together in a feedback loop that then updates the prompt for that customer in real time. So I'm thinking of this full meta AI assisted workflow with then AI working on AI in prod. And I don't know how much of it will happen in the future, but definitely have a look at Orion tools if you want to keep up to date with how we're doing with it. And yeah, love to have some contributions. And something like that is so early in the space. I feel like a lot of people have a hard time releasing control, especially when it's to a machine. And we're so early, there's, of course, going to be the adoption bell curve. You'll have your initial early adopters and you'll have the majority of people that take it. Then you'll have your uh, late adopters. I'm just, I'm really excited. I, th I feel like when it comes to AI, I'm an early adopter and I get really excited about the things like this. But I think it's going to be an uphill battle, especially for the use cases that you're describing, because it sounds like you're replacing people, a lot of people, a lot of processes. 
with something that's that's automated. Of course, you can't take everything that generative AI contributes as the truth. It still takes some review to make sure, like you said, it's doing what it's supposed to be doing or it's not hallucinating packages that don't exist. But I think it's going to be a tough battle in general going forward. What do you think about that? I, I know with how much you're into it, you're also an early adopter with everything in this space, but I'm sure you have insights that I don't have within this area. I think many people have that eureka moment where you're like, this is actually like really useful and this can save me a lot of time. Whether it takes jobs and stuff, I think it will take a lot of work that humans could do. I'm not an economist. I couldn't tell you whether it's going to take jobs or not, but I think it's going to make people a lot more productive. And I think many people over the course of the next six months, if they haven't already had it with ChatGPT, are going to have that eureka moment. And at this point, I think it does just sell itself. There are a few things that I don't understand AI for. So we can talk about those really quickly. And that is like synchronous processes. So things where you have to sit in front and watch it write rubbish code. I don't really understand. So GitHub Copilot is limited by its UX in this point. So it's basically just autocomplete, but they sell it as this like crazy AI autocomplete that can tell what you're going to write and write it before you've write, written it and you just tab it across and it's wonderful. I think it works almost like that, but I have to watch it write janky, dodgy code before I actually get it to write decent code and then I go and correct it. I don't think that's a really good UX. I think the best UX would be write your code. Yes, have an autocomplete, but write your code and then get something to check it or get it to write the code initially and then you check it and then get something to check you. So I think it's a very much a collaborative process, but asynchronously collaborative. And also getting AI to work on deterministic things just feels like a recipe for failure. So getting AI to generate your tests, I think is silly. I'm thinking about this thing called augmented TDD or like AI TDD, where you actually write the tests, then you get the AI to write the application code, because then the AI is bounded by your tests. As soon as you say, here's my application code, write tests for these edge cases, you're just going to be disappointed because it's going to miss edge cases. It's not going to understand what you mean. It's not going to understand the context of what you're doing because you wrote the application code. If you go the other way around and you write the test, you bound it by some invisible barriers or visible to it barriers, then I think it has a better idea of writing application code and you end up with a very similar result, but something that's way more testable, something that's way more usable. Does that make sense? It does. And that that really gives me a whole new light on test-driven development and using generative AI specifically for writing code because I have done the opposite. I have done the one that you said is silly and I agree, it is because it doesn't feel like a complete solution, but doing it the opposite way really makes sense. So Matt, we're out of time. I feel like we could have gone for hours with this one, but for now, thank you for your time. If anybody wants to get a hold of you or ask you questions, what's the best way they can reach out? So I'm on LinkedIn. You can even send me an email like mattc at alioffs.com. But also we started a sort of a collective for generative AI enthusiasts. It's called Gen AI Days. And so we're running meetups in London, Paris, and New York. And you can find that on genaidays.org. There's also a contact us form on there and you can sign up to a, a mailing list about all this sort of stuff. But yeah, reach out if you're interested. I'm sure me and Alan will have a chat about this another time. It's, it's really like, there's so much, there's so much to get into. There really is. And I appreciate this because this is going to help a lot of people, help me a ton. 
and we'll take it to the next level next time. And we'll educate, we'll make sure that generative AI and AI in general is not as scary as what a lot of people think that it is. Education is the biggest thing that you can do when something is scary. If you want to start building with AI, I would definitely recommend the Langchain docs. They explain things way better than I ever could with lovely, lovely descriptions and with really good images as well. So you can really get into that and understand the difference between your embeddings and your vector stores and your retrievers and all this sort of good stuff. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Matt. Thank you again. I really appreciate the time, man. Thanks, dude. That's it for this episode of the Ready, Set, Cloud podcast. Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on the latest episodes. For more info on trending cloud topics, be sure to visit readysetcloud.io and sign up for the serverless picks of the week newsletter. I'm Alan Helton, and we're out of here. 